The teaching text today comes from Revelation 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and I have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, uh, the last sentence there, uh, I pray that we would be those that have ears to hear. Uh, I pray that we would be those who because of your magnificent grace, accept a share in your victory and live that out because the promise is so great for right now and for forever. I thank you that you are a God that still speaks. Um, I pray that we would be a people that keep listening. And I just I wanna say, come Holy Spirit, sustain, sustain me, sustain all of us. Um, don't treat us as our sins deserve, but just give us a sanctuary in your mercy right now to really commune with you and to commune with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so we're at the, the last week uh, of this series, um, the Resurrection and the Life, this Eastertide series that we've been in, uh, basically just looking at what are the crucial steps, what are the, the, the shifts that take place in someone's life if they come into relationship with Jesus, if they experience his resurrection and his life as their, their own resurrection as well and their, their, their own life. Uh, what, what marks that life? If we Christians say that coming into loving, saving relationship with God through Jesus is the most important thing in life, what are the marks of that life? And that's, those are the questions we've been trying to answer uh, over the last, last few weeks. What, what, what changes in someone's life if they come into relationship with Jesus? And I was just thinking it might be a, a fun or possibly depressing uh, experiment to go out to the uh, farmer's market. I wonder how many of them can hear me right now. Maybe none. Um, and just, but just ask a random sampling of our Brooklyn neighbors this question. What do you think changes in someone's life if they come to have relationship with Jesus? What do you think their answers would be? I was trying to come up with a, with, with a few, and, and this is like a danger for, for any public speaker, and maybe preachers in particular, to like craft a straw man from people's, uh, from people's you know, what their answers might be. So I don't really know. There, there's probably some like fantastic, thoughtful people out there that would give way more nuanced answers than this, but some that I've sort of picked up along the way of, of, of what, what someone's perspective of someone who comes into a relationship with, with Jesus is, is, oh, they've gone from, from thinking um, to, to dreaming, 
You know, they sort of like exchanged a rational approach to the world for, for a different one. They were facing reality, but now in a sense they're kind of trusting, trusting a myth. Uh, maybe it's simple, like now they go to church so they can't go to brunch anymore. Um, uh, they found religion, so they're not going to be as fun as they used to be. So maybe that's a, a, a sort of a stereotype of, of, of people who are followers of Jesus. Or maybe it's actually worse. You know, our, our nation is in a particularly challenging, divided place. Maybe they think, oh, that would make someone actually more bigoted than they were before, or, or you know, they don't trust in a scientific understanding of the world anymore, and they're not going to care about the climate because they're just worried about, you know, the, uh, the great by and by, pie in the sky, dream of heaven. Maybe they would be worried about what political party that would align you with. Like that, isn't that a, kind of a bit of a shame that all that, if you know anything about what Jesus was and stood for and, and, and represents to, to us, that that would be the first question that pops up in people's minds when you think, oh, you're associated with Jesus. What does that mean it's for, for your voting platform? Or maybe they would think, oh, you're sexually rep- repressive. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Nice to meet you. Um, or you're going to try to convert people now, or you're, you're going to become bizarrely over-spiritually and generally weird. <laughs> wow, Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the answers you, you, you thought were. There's probably a whole host of others. Um, I think it's important right at the, at the top for those of us who are followers of Jesus to acknowledge that some of these stereotypes don't, don't come from nothing. They're, they're out there for, for a reason. Depending, welcome Bonham, um, set me right. Uh, we, we have to admit, right, there are, there are ways in which both us personally and the larger community of those who identify with Jesus often represent him poorly, because, I mean, this is like kind of a catch-22. If you all get in because of grace, that means we're not in because of resume and performance, which means we might not be the greatest, folks. We're just in because we're forgiven, so great. Um, we, 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 you know, I, 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 I relate to, you know, Gandhi saying, I, I like your Christ, I just don't like your Christians. They're nothing like your Christ. And I don't want that to be true of me, but I can also relate to it being true of me. Shoot. So what do we do? I, I, I think those negative stereotypes are, are out there, but uh, I think maybe something even more powerful and beautiful than moving through any negative perception is to look at the invitation that Jesus gives, to so try to look at it in, in a pure and true way. What, is, what type of life is Jesus offering? That's been our attempt in this series, to look at the type of life Jesus is offering. I, I once heard uh, a few years back that the people who are trained to recognize forgeries, uh, the, the, sort of the, the counterfeit team, uh, recognizing forged U.S. currency, they don't spend their time looking over every possible fake you know, currency note or, or possible forgery. They, spend, uh, they become so familiar with the real thing visually, uh, its texture, its dimensions, its, its, even its smell. They know real money so well that then, then they can identify a forgery. And I think that's important. What I want to do with my life is, is get to know the real person of Jesus so much so that I'm not contending against a bunch of forgeries. I'm just trying to press into the real life that he offers. I want that for my own heart, and I want that for, for us a, 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 as a church family. So what is the life Jesus is offering? That's what these shifts consist of. Um, we've looked at, we've looked at uh, four of them so far, the fifth one today, uh, moving from death to life. Uh, that we come into relationship with Christ and we, we literally come alive, moving from shame to acceptance, uh, self to others, consumerism to mission. We've preached on all these, so I'm not going to recap them too much. But the last shift uh, from striving to abiding, one thing, I, why I put the list up there, what I want you to notice is the first one and the last one, they deal primarily with our relationship with God. 
how it begins, coming, becoming spiritually alive through the mercy and grace of what Jesus has done on the cross, his resurrection life becoming our life, being full of his spirit. It's like you're born in a new way. You go from spiritual death to spiritual life. And then the, the last one is about how that relationship is sustained, how we, how we move. We remain in his love. We abide in relationship with him. So the first two are about our, our the first one and the last one are about our relationship with God. And the ones in the middle are about, are, are about our, our, how we understand ourselves, how we relate to each other, how we live in the world. If you think about, like, the, the, one of the things we talk about is the four relationships in our life, God, self, others, world. You have your relationship with God, you have your self-understanding and your identity, a relationship with, with other people, and then your relationship with, with the world and society and your vocation and your, and, and your work. And bracketed in, the, in these shifts is a relationship with God, a relationship with God, and then how that transforms the rest of our, the rest of our relationships. That's, that's part of, uh, a key part of what the, the life that Jesus is offering. So just think about this. This is the life. God invites you to be fully alive, he invites you to be free from shame and fear and actually truly, if you, even if you can't imagine this right now, to be full of his love, to be free from a small cage of selfishness that can so easily hold our lives and, and to come into a wide space of truly sharing your life with others, to join in a mission that's beyond just the small narrative of your individual story, but it's wide enough to encompass people from every tribe and tongue and nation across all the ages of history and, and moving towards this, this glorious future with God that we're joining in a mission of the renewal of all things. That's a beautiful life. <laughs> It's a shame that we take that offer and, and we somehow reduce it down into those stereotypes that I mentioned at the beginning. And all those shifts, these shifts are held together by, by this one at the end, from striving to abiding. Basically, from approaching God from a performance-based uh, base mentality in order to earn his approval instead of realizing the love and acceptance that have come to us in Christ and remaining in that love. It's basically like, a religious framework or a relational framework, maybe you've heard of it described in those ways, but a, re- a religious framework, first of all, is primarily thinking about the things that I, the pathway I need to follow to get to God. And that's so easy to slip into, even if you've heard about, uh, about grace and the life that Jesus has lived and the death he's died and, and what he offers, it's still so easy to sort of become a bookkeeper in your mind and to imagine that God's fundamentally disappointed in us and I've got to follow this course so that he'll love me. That's, that's different from the relational framework that the gospel offers us in the New Testament, which says there's no way you could possibly ever follow the path because where you're trying to get is an impossible place. It's the holiness of God. God wants you to be so like him, that your very character becomes like him, that your very nature becomes like him. There's no way that you could take the steps to get there. The religious way is impossible. So God has come to us, done everything necessary in Jesus for us to be embraced. And this is the relational framework. Now, how do you stay in that? You work, you remain in his love. You abide. This is like the central teaching that Jesus gives to his closest friends about how to walk with him. It comes in John 15, just before he's betrayed. It'll be familiar to many of you, but I'm going to put it on the screen. I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. 
Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain, that was a terrible place to pause, wasn't it? And burned. (laughs) Welcome, friends. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Now, I want to say, say some things about the intensity of the imagery in there, and I'm going to a little, a, a little later. But for, for a moment, just think about the, the, the driving primary metaphor of those verses and what Jesus is teaching. Essentially, there is immense power, power in the imagery, but Jesus is making it so clear that what's essential for us is remaining connected to the, to, to, the, to, the, to the trunk of the tree, to the vine, the branch connected so that the life of God is flowing through us. That, that's what brings the fruit. That, that connection point, that abiding point, that remaining in his love is what is absolutely essential. Now, I was all set to preach this. This is, if you're gonna talk about abiding, this, like in the other translations, that's the actual word used in this passage. This is the abiding text of the New Testament. I was all set to preach on this, and God interrupted my plan. I was sitting in, in, in my room, a time, of, a time of prayer, super holy, you, you, you know, just like you'd expect, great pastor. I was thinking about abiding. I was thinking about how do I teach on remaining in the love? Like what, what, what are the practical things? Like what are the takeaways of how to remain in the love of Jesus? How do you abide with him? And then I heard this little gentle conviction in my spirit sort of tapping. I was like, I don't have really a lot of time, Jesus. Maybe just like drop a few points on me. I've got to go. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't shake this uh, this. This passage in Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 2, where uh, Jesus is writing words to the church at Ephesus, and he says, you've lost your first love. I think that's, that's got to be close to what it means to, to not be abiding, <laughs> is to lose your first love. And I just felt like God pressing on my heart. It's like, yeah, exactly like that. Caleb, I'm, I'm concerned that you've lost your first love. And, uh, and I was like, man, shoot, does this mean I have to change the passage I'm going to preach on? And I think the answer was yes. These, the, the people that Jesus is writing to, they, they had known Christ's love. They had known it deeply. They knew what it was to, for their lives to be transformed, for these shifts to take place in their life. And yet at some point along the way, it became duty. Life became endurance. Life became getting from the thing that you're doing to the next thing and just, just getting through. And they had generally begun to have the, the love drained from their faces, from their hearts, from the, from the energy and, and, and their spirits. And I was just struck by those particular words. I have this against you that you've lost your first love. And so I just want to take you on a personal, the personal journey that, that I went on. If I went on it, you're going to have to go on it too. I've got this Britney Spears microphone. Um, 
I generally did think, okay, this is a word for me that I, that I wrestled with, but then I, I think it might be a word for our church in this particular season. So let's see if we can work through it together. I, f- I first want to set the scene for, for this passage that was read as our teaching text so that, that we understand the full scope of, of what's going on. I'll try, I'm going to try to go really quick through this. So if you sense me not going really quick through this section, just do this. We'll do, you're, you're free to do this together. My wife isn't here this morning. She does this, and so I need a fill-in. Um, So John is the disciple who's writing the book of Revelation. He's writing down this vision. He's the same one who recorded John 15, Jesus' like pinnacle teaching on how to abide, how to remain in his love, how to bear fruit like a branch connected to a tree. So he was so marked by the love of Jesus that literally when he refers to himself in Jesus' biography, he doesn't call himself John. He calls himself the one that Jesus loved. And I think that he doesn't do that in a super arrogant way. I think he's literally like, Jesus' love changed my life. This is the primary way that I identify myself. That's the one who's writing. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos. And he begins to have a vision of Jesus. And it would have been shocking to him as someone who had followed Jesus around, who had been there when Jesus was executed, because this is not a vision of Jesus like what we have in the Gospels, who's, who's born as an infant, who, who, who walks around in, in relative weakness, um, who, who experiences like real suffering and eventual death. He has a vision of Jesus that is stunning, glorious, m- majestic, strong, dressed in robes, hair white as snow. Just crack open your Bible. I know you avoid the book of Revelation because it's scary and that's okay but the vision of Jesus in this book is 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 so majestic eyes like fire his voice is like the sound of rushing waters like you begin to see okay we're talking about something metaphorically because the actual reality is impossible to land on with language but the, the majestic power of Jesus and out of this incredible vision of Jesus comes some specific words for the churches that are popping up in the way of Jesus around the Roman Empire. And he gives these specific words to these churches. And then he circulates the letter to all of them. So there are specific words for each of the churches, but basically all of the churches need to hear what's said to all the other churches because we're all in this shared human experience. And what, what one person is susceptible to, we're all susceptible to as well. So essentially, the letters to each of the churches, there's seven of them, they break down like this. Hey, remember Jesus? There's things that Jesus praises about your church and your life. There's things that Jesus has an issue with going on in your church and your life. And here's what needs to change and here's the promise associated with that change. That's basically the format of these letters. And the first one is to Ephesus. Ephesus was the first stop on a circular route uh, for these letters to be delivered. Uh, The first stop closest to the island of Patmos. Ephesus was a place of great, great power it functioned as the capital city of the Roman province. Several emperors made their temporary homes in Ephesus. It was the center, center of commerce. Several major land and sea trade route, uh, routes uh, sort of connected there in Ephesus. Historians called Ephesus the greatest emporium of Asia Minor. So out to coffee today, you can debate what you think the second and third greatest emporiums of Asia Minor were. Goat status, you know what I mean? I'm going to keep moving. You're supposed to do this. You're not doing that. All right. It was a city of great cultural influence. The temple of Diana and Ar- Ar- of Artemis and Diana was there. One of the seven wonders of the world in, in, the, in this city. There were many reasons the citizens of Ephesus had to think highly of themselves. Their church was planted by the Apostle Paul. So, super Christian, on the circuit, Britney Spears microphone, all the conferences want this guy. Book is a bestseller. 
The power of God fell so mightily through the ministry of of Paul communicating the gospel that a riot erupted in Ephesus. And they're like, get these Christians out of here. They're totally toppling sort of the the market structure of our city. The idols that we used to sell aren't selling anymore. We want these Christians out of here. Profound, powerful impact of the gospel in Ephesus. People were apprehended, seized by a great affection, by the love of Jesus. Paul moves on and, and, and hands it off to none other than Timothy, guys, <laughs> tiny Tim, Paul's buddy, his like, you know, son in the faith, he, get, he gives, and then eventually, John, the disciple, the eyewitness of Jesus' life, comes to pastor in Ephesus. So Paul, Timothy, John, great city, great church, all-star leaders, you want to line up outside to get into this, this church. This is what Jesus tells them. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's the churches. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. That's a pretty good list of things. Think about the things, right? We'll just pull them out really quickly. We don't need a commentary for this. Hard work. They've been changed by God and it had led them to a life of working. They were joining God in the renewal of all things. They were starting in Ephesus and, and they were seeing real change. Perseverance, right? Things had gotten hard. There was real resistance. We talk at Trinity Grace all the time about the kingdom of God it, like, comes, it advances in the world through contested space, Trying to follow Jesus is not an easy thing in a world that in many ways is bent against that way of life. They had, they had had hard work, they had perseverance, they had a commitment to, to the true gospel. People had tried to come in and gain influence in their community by preaching a gospel different than the one that they had received, and they had resisted. They had a commitment to the true gospel. They, they, they had tested these leaders who wanted influence and found them false. They had endured hardship, and not just general hardship, but specifically hardship for being associated with Jesus. These are things that are, that are really important. They need to be present in a church. And I actually love, because Jesus is gonna, he's gonna bring a, a really challenging critique in, one, in the very next sentence. But I love that he can be nuanced. I love that he can praise the things that need to be praised. Often, especially like as our online interactions begin more and more to define our real life interactions, we're, we're sort of only in the business of doing wholesale critique, <laughs> We're like, label, dismiss, label, dismiss, label, dismiss one another. And it's it's so agonizingly painful and it cuts against the image of God in us in a profound way. But Jesus is able to say, I see this. I love this. I celebrate this about you. I was there when you were enduring and and it brought me such joy. And this is the thing I have against you. He's able to be to be nuanced. He, he, he doesn't miss anything. He praises what should be praised. He says, I see your endurance. I see your purity. I see that you live by your convictions. I see that you have a commitment to, 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 my, to my name, and it's beautiful to me. He's like a good father in that way, where he can say, this is amazing. Let's work on this. Because what's, what, what we're working on, it's, it, it's so worth it <laughs> for, for, what, for what's coming. So then Jesus cuts to the heart. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. I'm sitting in my room. I'm, I'm out of time for sermon prep. I gotta get to the next meeting. I hear the still small voice of God. I know you can endure. 
I know you can get through some hard things. I see that. I, I love you. Those things aren't lost on me. I just, I just begin to sense the Spirit of God saying this to me. And I'm just going to mention a couple of mine, and I don't mention them because they're different or worse than yours. They're just mine. So you would add your list as I'm reading mine. But these are the things I was thinking about God seeing and saying, I put my finger on that, and I was present, and I know about it, and I, I saw it, and I grieve it with you. I know I'm not the first person to lose a parent too young to be woken up in the middle of the night by a phone call that you never want to get. I know that we're not the first, my wife and I, to lose, uh, have a pregnancy end in miscarriage. I know that I'm not the first to wander through a long period without work when I thought I was taking a step that God had led me to. Be like, hey, wilderness, what are we doing here? I know I'm not the first to, to fight back strongholds, um, uh, both of, of addiction and anxiety and substances and, and, and all, all, all different things in between. I know that we're not the first church to go through a big transition. I know that we're, we're not the first, um, first people to fight for community in a transient city and to invest with people and to really love them and then to have those people come to you and sit down for coffee and say, guess what, we're moving to Seattle. And, and, and we're not the first people who, right, this, this year, we're not the first church that, that's been through agonizing, unexpected, maybe even unimaginable tragedy in our, in our midst with losing these two beautiful children. And I felt that from the Spirit of God, I've seen all of it. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I, I, I know that you've had to gut it out at, at times. But then I felt him say, I, I miss the joy that you had in just being with me. I miss the joy that you had in just being with me. I have this against you. You've left your first love. And I had such a sense that it was, it was a corrective, that there was a warning in there, but it was also like an invitation to embrace, like God saying, come on back. Um, and, and, and I really think that it extends beyond just me personally to our church as a whole. Think about the work a branch does on a tree. Nothing. No work. It simply stays in connection to the tree and the life of the tree runs through it and that is how it bears fruit. That Paying attention to that connection is everything. It is everything for our church. This is our picture, like a branch connected to a tree. That's what it is to abide. And I realize how easy it is for me with my Britney Spears microphone to pay lip service to that and then to go out and try to hustle my way through life. Try to get from one thing to the next thing. So I went back to a book that's like a balm of grace for me. Brandon Manning's The Ragamuffin Gospel or, or anything that he's ever written. They're all basically the exact same message. Um, in a good way. This is what Manning says. Listen to this. We accept grace in theory but deny it in practice. Living by grace rather than law leads us out of the house of fear and into the house of love. In love there is no room for fear, but perfect love drives out fear because fear implies punishment and no one who is afraid has come to perfection in love. Just a note, that's the same John who wrote John 15 and this vision in Revelation. So he's, he's helping us here. He's hammering it home. 
While we profess our faith in God's unconditional love, many of us still live in fear. Henry Nouwen remarks, look at the many if questions we raise. What am I going to do if I do not find a spouse, a house, a job, a friend, a benefactor? What, what am I going to do if they fire me, if I get sick, if an accident happens, if I lose my friends, if my marriage does not work out, work out if war breaks out? What if tomorrow the weather is bad, the buses are on strike? Or an earthquake happens. What if someone steals my money, breaks into my house, rapes my daughter, or kills me? Once these questions guide our lives, we take out a second mortgage in the house of fear. Maybe those are the exact if questions that you ask. I have my own list, but I realized somewhere along the lines in the last few months, I took out a second mortgage in the house of fear and I was enduring my life. Once we begin to think of life as something that we are merely enduring, we are back into the realm of striving, and we need to hear the words of Jesus. And that's why they're there. John 15 and Revelation 2 are not there because it's like, oh, I heard this once and I've got it now. I will never drift from my first love again. I will always be abiding, right? He speaks to them. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in my love. Remain in my love. I needed to hear Jesus' words, as intense as they were, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Some of you are like, not my lampstand. What in the world? (laughs) These... these, (laughs) These words of Jesus are striking, they're crucial, but they may, right, let's be honest, right, sometimes Jesus, meek and mild, his words are intense, and they might sound harsh to us, they might sound abrupt, they might sound rude when he's talking to people. Uh, in John 15, he says, if you're a, you're a branch, you're going to be pruned, and if you, if, you, if you don't abide, you're going to be like sticks that are broken off and collected for, for waste, and here he's saying, in, in the same place, in a similar metaphor, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand, basically... The metaphors are intense, but they mean a similar thing. There is no real life for Christians without remaining in the love of Jesus. Without that, you become dry and brittle, and your, your strength dries up, and, and you fall off, and, and you, you drop to the ground, and you can't make it. For a church, which is the metaphor of the lampstand, if you're not connected to the love of Jesus and you're just like working yourself to the bone, running programs and trying to show up, eventually your, your light, your place, your influence, the, your, your shining light of the kingdom in the world is going to be reduced and removed. The Irish philosopher Peter Rollins says, the church is not dying in the West. God's killing it. And I don't know if I am ready to go to the full extent of, belief, of, of, of going there with, with, with Rollins, but essentially, like, if, if we're not remaining in the love of Jesus and we're operating on some other source, we're going to be like a tree that, that branches dry up and they fall off. We're going to be like a lampstand that's light slowly reduces and it's, it's not helping people see anymore, and so it's, it's, it's becoming useless. But the call is right there. Return to your first love. Return to your first love. And the instructions for returning are right there in the text. You don't even need a commentary to find them. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. Three simple movements to return to your first love. 
I wanted to teach on John 15 because it's the best passage on abiding in the New Testament. But then I realized in my own heart, what do I do when I realize I've slipped out of somehow abiding, that I've, my first love has gotten diminished, that, that I feel beat up and, and exhausted? What do I do? And the words to Jesus and the church in Ephesus is, remember how far you've fallen, change directions, repent, and then do the things that you did at first. So I just want to look at those three and then we're done. That, that was not that long. First, take an honest account of your life. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Simple simple as this. Don't lie to yourself about where your heart is. And don't lie to God. Consider what's really going on in your actual life, in your actual mind, in your actual heart. Where are you? If you need a diagnostic and you're like, I'm not sure where my heart is. Jesus says you can look at your time and you can look at your money and there will be indicators. They might not tell the whole story, but the things that your energy and your, 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 your time and your money flow towards are the things that have your heart almost always. So they're a diagnostic tool to show, to show where, where, where our hearts are. Consider like what captures your imagination, what has your heart, what really excites you, what makes it good to be alive right now. Are you aware of Jesus' deep love for you? Right, this, this is the, the fight. <laughs> right, I become aware of Jesus' deep love and I relax. <laughs> when, I, when I have come into the presence of God so often, I go from a worrying, striving mindset to a release. Oh, I am Abba's child. Oh, I have been, he's literally shed his blood for me. Oh, if he gave me his son, how will he not with me freely give me all things that I need? Like this thing that I just did or or pattern that I fell into, was Jesus unaware of that when he first showed me mercy? (laughs) Absolutely not. He knew about literally all of it. And he was like, I know the whole story and I'm fully bringing you in, your family all the way, you're taking my name, you're covered by my blood, you're totally clean, you're totally forgiven, you're a saint in the kingdom of God, you're qualified to share in the inheritance and the kingdom of light and I know that you've been my enemy and I know that you will be again. Utter, total, sheer grace. And as soon as you want to qualify and say, yeah, but we got to be better, stop yourself. And just let the grace land on you. But I'm going to really change and I'm going to lose the weight and I'm going to get fit and then I'm going to be a better Christian, share my faith more and more quiet times and more journaling. The life we are called to begins and ends with Jesus. Not our performance. One more from the Ragamuffin Gospel, Brendan Manning. Living by grace inspires a growing consciousness consciousness that I am what I am in the sight of Jesus and nothing more. It is his approval that counts. Making our home in Jesus as he makes his in us leads to creative listening. Do you think that you could hear God say something like this? Has it crossed your mind that I am proud you accepted the gift of faith? Proud that you freely chose me after I had chosen you as your friend and Lord. Proud that with all your warts and wrinkles you haven't given up. Proud that you believe in me enough to try again and again. Are you aware of how I appreciate you for wanting me? 
I want you to know how grateful I am when you pause to smile and comfort a child who has lost her way. I am grateful for the hours you devote to learning more about me, for the word of encouragement you passed on to your burnt out pastor, whoop, for your visit to the shut-in, for your tears for the mentally ill. What you did to them, you did to me. Alas, I am sad when you do not believe that I have totally forgiven you or feel, or feel comfortable approaching me. Creative listening to hear the voice of God speak the words of adoption, the words of sonship and daughtership over our hearts. Consider the height with which, from which you've fallen. Take true account of your life and then change directions. It's literally as simple as saying, I've been striving, I've been exhausted, I've been measuring things by my own performance, I've been running on my own fuel, and this simple movement, I'm changing directions. I'm receiving that, that, that loving word. I'm, I'm, I'm shifting my analysis from my work to Christ's work. And now the categories have changed. I'm gonna come back to the love of God today. Some of you will feel like you're running home after years of being away and you're gonna be embraced and a robe's gonna be put on you you're gonna be given a ring and a party's gonna be thrown. Some of you are gonna feel like you just let go of something that you've been working to the bone on and you're just gonna leave it for a moment. Take one step back, breathe and look up. It's not gonna feel like running home. It's gonna feel like releasing. Change directions. Just say, I'm gonna come back to that branch and vine connection to how much I'm loved by Jesus and then do what you did at first. Now this implies that you had a deep love for Jesus at some point. For some of you, the things that I'm about to describe are things that you'll do when you first come into to an awareness of this love. Your life is transformed by the gospel and you believe in Jesus and you finally believe the thing that happened in his life and death and resurrection wasn't just for other people, it was for you. That he's calling you by name, that he's inviting you into his kingdom, that he wants to fill you with his spirit. But for many of you, you can remember the childlike joy that was present in your life when you, when you first received the love of Jesus. I, I began to think back to how tender my heart used to be. How joyful I was towards God in my early years of walking with him. And I, I want to qualify it so much. Be like, I'm not that bad, guys. This was just a, one, a couple of days and a, a few weeks and it's been challenging. You guys know how hard. Like to, I, I so want to qualify, right? So I got to be the pastor. Nah. I want to get back to just walking around with Jesus. <laughs> I used to do that all the time, and I've just, now I'm just like, let's get a sermon together. Lord, how about it? I would, I, I would walk around and just talk to him, and I had to find closed-off places to do this so I didn't look crazy. But now, with the headphone things, the small Bluetooth, you can do it everywhere. <laughs> you can walk around and talk out loud to God. People are like, he's talking to his mom. Look at him on his phone. He's not talking to God. He's not crazy. I, I, I write out prayers. I have journals full of prayers that I've written out. And they, they, so many of them start out with like really intentional, neat handwriting. It's like, God, I'm really frustrated about a few things right now. And then by the end, like as I write the prayer, it's the same thing will happen that you'll see happen in the Psalms. My perspective will shift. And then by like three or four pages later, I'm writing in letters, wasting paper, just like, praise you, Jesus. You're taking it away. I'm different now. I want to get back to walking around and having out loud conversations with Jesus. I want to get back to writing out my prayers. I want to get back to worshiping in songs, right? When I became a Christian, I started writing poems. And like that's like, oh, great. 
For me, that was something because it was like I started to have an attention to detail about the beauty of life that hadn't been there before. And I started to want to wring it out of things. And I started to like think in images in a way that are different than I, than I had before. And I want to get back to that. And, and I began to practice thankfulness. One of the things that brought me out of the cage of crippling anxiety was thankfulness was beginning to say, God, I thank you that the the sun is coming through the clouds right now. I thank you that I have enough money to have Honey Nut Cheerios right now. I thank you that my son uh, is just sitting with me right now. And I I just began to practice thankfulness in this way that all of a sudden I wasn't measuring life by my failures. I was beginning to say, God, you've given these good things. I don't want to let my entire life be defined by my pain. I want to make a note and mark the good and beautiful things. For me, abiding was, was about practicing thankfulness. It was following promptings from the Holy Spirit, right? I would pass someone, I'd get halfway down the block. I, I was talking to someone in a membership interview about this very thing. And I knew I should have, I should have stopped and, 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 and had a conversation with them, and I wouldn't, and I would make a bunch of rounds, and then I'd be like, fine. And I'd go back and like have the conversation, right? That, that, this, the homeless person on the street, but, but, but more than that, right? Following the promptings of the Spirit. When I, when I look up from my life and I realize I've been ignoring those, it's, it's a warning, Sharing my faith, having secret generosity, reading the scriptures because I want to form my life by them, not just so that I can understand them. These are the practices for me of abiding. I want you to think, what are the things in your life? And I want you to literally think of a list. What are your practices for remaining in the love of Jesus? How do you do it? Right, and it's so, like, this is the trickiest part, right? Because it's so easy to switch back to religious mode. The way I remain in the love of Jesus is this 18 things on my to-do list. No. It's how do you cultivate a friendship? Well, these 18 things. Walk with the person. Talk with the person. Listen to the person. Follow the promptings of the person's heart. Right? Do the things that you did at, did at first. Allow his love to wash over you. Come to the, to the scriptures to, to meet God, not just to learn something. That's it. That's the whole sermon. I felt like the Lord was saying to me two things that I want to just make so clear to our church. The hardships, the pain, and the endurance. He's seen. He knows. He's been in the middle of them. There's not a single tear that you've shed in secret that he hasn't seen. There's not a single anxiety or or inky black depression that you've carried that he doesn't know about. There's not a single act of faithfulness that no one else saw that he doesn't know about. He knows all those things. He's been present and he celebrates them. He's able to praise, praise those things in your life, even though they're gifts from him, right? But he also is, is inviting us back into his embrace, back to do the things that that are just wasting time with God. Back to relationship of deep love. We're coming home into God's embrace to abide, to be safe, to be loved. Let me pray that that would be true of us. Someone in pre-service prayer said, even when we want to get to you, God, we have to remember that you are the motivation and the spirit by which we move. So we want to return to your embrace as a church this morning, as individuals. In advance of all of our promises to do better, without worrying about our speeches of of contrition, just returning to our first love. 
I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to feel your morning. Help us to know your love. Help us to believe that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That it is by your spirit that, 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 that we come to know that we are children who can cry out, Abba, Father, to you, sons and daughters. I pray for those who are exhausted, for those who are anxious, for those who are depressed, for those who are beaten down, for those who are ready to give up, or for those who are prideful at their own success. I pray that we could just have a spirit of release this morning, receiving your extravagant love. In Jesus' name, amen.